0: C plus W is greater than E, and it's curiosity and willingness is greater than experience. When you recruit on that basis, it's really good because it actually makes you seek out those people who are incredibly curious. And as long as they've got a passion and a willingness to learn new things, often that can be actually more valuable than experience.
1: Welcome to the Super Managers Podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits thought patterns, learnings, and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams collaborate on meeting agendas, track action items, and turn chaotic meetings into productive work sessions. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden and I'm the CEO of fellow.app. Today's guest is Hamish Thompson. He's a former regional president and global brand head for Mars Inc past senior marketing leader at Reebok International, and today he's the author of It's Not Always Right to Be Right. In today's episode, Hamish shares why hiring people that think exactly like you is a mistake and why having diversity of thought is going to set you ahead. We also talk about his recruitment philosophy and what the formula C plus W is greater than E Means and why experience isn't the most important factor to consider. Finally, we talk about why leaders need to honor the past, respect the present, and provide hope. For the future. If you found this episode helpful to your leadership journey, let us know by using the hashtag supermanagers on social. And don't forget, send us an email to supermanagersfellow.app. We're building a Slack community of listeners where we get feedback on episodes, suggestions for future ones, and in general, allow you to meet other supermanagers fans. Send us a note at supermanagersfellow.app. We look forward to your email. And without further ado, here's Hamish Thompson on episode 78 of the Supermanagers
0: Podcast.
1: Hamish, hey, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, I'm great to be with you.
1: There's a lot of stuff that we're going to talk about today. I mean, you have such an interesting career. You've worked at uh, companies like Mars and, and Reebok, a lot of great brands you're the author of it's not always right to be right which we're going to uh, dig into quite a bit why don't we start off with one of my favorite questions which is you know you've been a leader for a long time and if we have uh, if we could rewind back to those early days when you first started leading teams uh, do you remember some of the mistakes that that you you made back then
0: yeah i think so and i um i love the concept of actually mistakes and your best mistakes and i think we all talk around it, but the exceptional cultures, exceptional companies, they are those ones who embrace risk-taking and mistakes along the way. So I think probably from my own leadership journey, when I first got within sort of the CEO-type roles, and this is back within uh, Wrigley Confectionery, Game, I was heading up the Pacific region. And when I suddenly took on this leadership team, uh, Aiden, it was... Um, I probably jumped into rookie mistakes overall. And probably the first mistake is I started to hire people who thought exactly like me. And I love diversity. I love sort of uh, different perspectives and newness, but I, uh, well, not intentionally, I had this bias of hiring people who thought like me. And that's probably the worst mistake for a leader is to have people who think like you and yes people involved within that. So it's something that consciously probably over the last 10 plus years in my CEO roles, I've really encouraged to get diverse sort of views and thinking. Um, And another one of them that same team, which uh, I think a lot of people uh, make when they take on a leadership role, you try and get the team to love you And there's all the galloping and engagement scores and you spend so much time on that, but it's not around your team and your direct reports loving you. They have to do that. If they don't get on with you (laughs) and they don't have a relationship, they are the ones who are gonna get hurt. But the real insight is you want your leadership team to start actually loving each other and really working, connecting, and integrating within each other. And there was a classical schoolboy era Um, It wasn't about me. It's more around getting that team actually uh, in together. And those are the main ones. And I think probably the other mistake which I made, um, thinking that a leader, I had to actually shelter my team, remove a lot of that sort of stretch and panic. So in difficult situations, I would always step up and I would take that role on to be that sort of face where if you're actually going to develop and stretch your team, you want them to have those crucial moments, those crucial conversations. You don't want to micromanage even if you think you're doing it for the right reasons. So, um, I've made a lot of those rookie errors, but uh, if you didn't go through them, you're never going to actually learn and uh, go that next stage.
1: I must say that your rookie mistakes are uh, very advanced sounding mistakes. So I have to dig in quite a bit. They're, they're not the typical, I like to micromanage a lot or you know, some of the, the more, more surface level mistakes. These are deep mistakes. So I have to ask you, how did you figure out that you were making the mistake of hiring people? like yourself? Because that's not an easy one to just uncover. Because when you when you hire such people, I mean, you might have a great time, you know, getting along and, and things like that. Uh, did you turn around and say, hey, life is too good. <laughs> I should hire people different? Or how did this happen?
0: So now I think it came about where I've, I've always been, uh, I've been very lucky because I've been part of exceptional businesses and exceptional cultures. And I've been fortunate to be really reasonably successful in regard to results wise over the years and i think my discovery on that came that when i saw that new perspective led to bigger transformational results i started to actually seek that out and i have this terminology around everyone should be insatiably curious Um, and i had a great boss with an asia pacific uh, called samson suin and Samson used to say, your mind works like a parachute, best when open. And I loved that. And when I started discovering that when I had external connections, new perspective, an inside out sort of lens, um, ideas, opportunities, processes, new strategies, they were so much more valuable. And when you discover that, it was a little bit selfish. Then I actually went on a real mission how can I actually recruit people that are dramatically different from me? And that's not only, I'm a massive believer in, um, in diversity and inclusion, um, gender in particular, but cultural, um, different ways of thinking and approaches. And it's not only those people who look different from you, They have to think differently from you. And it can be incredibly challenging. You get that in a group of sort of leaders around the table and everyone's got different views and you do feel tension. But that goes back, and we'll talk around it later in the the book, It's Not Always Right to Be Right. It's okay to have a different opinion. doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's just different. So selfishly, Um, I think I came to that conclusion because it uh, it actually garnered me better results.
1: You know, if I were to dig in, so you're not talking about just, you know, some more surface level things, which are, you know, for example, like I tend to be good at marketing. Let's hire someone that's more finance-minded. You're you're actually looking for maybe diversity of background, people with um, you know different sorts of uh, coming from different industries, or just like you can kind of tell that they would bring a different point of view to the equation. So this isn't like the sort of thing that I would imagine that you know first year manager realizes that oh I should do this. This is something that like as you've built larger and larger organizations. You start to understand that, like when you have that diverse opinion set, uh, it really makes a, a big difference and, and allows for, I guess, uh, bigger, bigger takeaways. Yeah, I think
0: you do develop that insight over time. But uh, equally, you start to realize it's a fair bit more fun. And I've always been my sort of perspective is when I hear an idea, if I think I'm going off on uh, on the right direction, there are certain people when they say. Um, we're going left. Normally, I'd think, why are they going left? But there are some people with that curious mindset where I think, gee, why am I going right? And it just, it's a real fun element to start to value opinions of others ahead of yourselves. And you seek to understand before being understood. Um, So I think it's, uh, it's enjoyable. It's valuable, opens up new perspective. But equally, Aiden, I'd say that I think the new generation of leaders coming through, I think they are more connected. They're more integrated. Um, They are more global citizens. I know it's a little bit of a cliche, but their mind thinks wider than probably my generation as well. So um, I would even say at a young age, starting out even at management level, show your curiosity and perspective um, and I think it'll open a, a wide range of doors for you.
1: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And so, to dig into the the other one, you know, I have a a friend runs a fairly large uh, company, maybe you know, thousand thousand people that work there. And you know, the thing that I learned from him was that he said that one of the things that's that's hard about scaling teams is you know people don't realize that you have to make the teams work well together. And that was one of the like you have to be this this orchestrator and get your executive team to to really function well together. And it seems like this is the 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 very interesting, you know, point that you're you're making if I have it correct, is like, yeah, you can get the team to love you, but actually that's not like the most important thing. I'm just curious like what are some Things that you can do to help your team, you know, gel better together and and to hit some of those crucial moments.
0: Yeah. I think the very first thing on on teams, if you give them a shared purpose and a shared agenda, I think they'll work well together. There's nothing worse, and I've heap of your listeners will find that you're encouraged within a business to have relationships and to network. That's all very well and, well and good, but you actually unlock team potential by giving people a shared purpose and a shared agenda to to work on. And equally, I think as a leader, if you encourage, you reward and recognize those people who are good at integrating and connecting others. So even if you put them on a project and their technical and functional know-how is incredibly limited, that's okay. As long as they are the best people leaders integrating and pulling people together because when you do get alignment and cohesion behind a, a shared purpose um it is pretty hard to actually stop so i think that's the sort of a real sort of key element and the other one even which um over the years i've changed my recruitment philosophy so it used to be around technical and functional um, master class i wanted that experience there's a concept I was exposed to a few years back and it said uh, C plus W is greater than E and it's curiosity and willingness is greater than experience. When you recruit on that basis, it's really good because it actually makes you seek out those people who are incredibly curious. And as long as they've got a passion and a willingness to learn new things, often that can be actually more valuable than experience. Now, you can't override the importance of experience um, but it's just a completely different way to get new people into your team.
1: You know, curiosity is such a um, you know u- useful trait. One of my friends, who I consider to be a great parent, say that you know the the best thing that I can do is help my kids be more curious. How do you figure out? if someone has that curiosity and, and maybe willingness is something that you can, you can kind of figure out if they've done a lot more initiative, but how do you know if someone is genuinely a curious person?
0: I think you find out pretty quickly once, uh, once you get to know them, probably it's, it may be unfortunate in some ways, but if, uh, if I think around big strategic planning sessions and days, and it doesn't matter what level you are, you jump yourselves in a room, you surround yourself with people and, uh, The best leaders are those who encourage everyone's opinion to count. So it's an egalitarian approach. Everyone's involved within this. You soon find out within those sessions who's got limiting beliefs. And unfortunately, often the people with the most limiting beliefs have been successful over past years. So they believe they don't need to change and they don't need to do anything different going forward. It's really obvious when you're in that situation where convergent, divergent sort of views, new adjacencies, categories, segments, geographies you can go after. And people are talking around how to reinvent the business, constantly stay ahead of the curve. And there are certain people within that room and it invariably happens who will have limiting beliefs. Can't be done, hasn't been done. Historically, these have been the issues. No, we haven't got the capabilities or mindsets. And you find that out very quickly and equally, I think also there's a negativity that radiates amongst uh, amongst the wider group as well when you have those people who don't have curiosity. Again, going back to that recruitment philosophy, there are ways you can actually um, measure, ask questions within interviews for curiosity. And it's quite interesting. I was in the Facebook uh, head office a number of years back, and they had a great um, quote on the uh, one of their motivational posters, and it said. Don't confuse motion for impact. And I just absolutely love that a lot of people go through the process, but there are so many people who talk theory and intellectual stimulation, that they can't actually translate that into action. And again, great companies will have a way of actually interviewing for impact uh, directly up front. So I think it becomes very obvious, and it's not saying those people are wrong. Um, but they just may not be right for your culture. And if your company wants a culture of perspective, outward lens, connectivity, which I think is crucial for breakthrough, um, you'll find out pretty quickly who's right and uh, who's not right for the business.
1: I wanted to talk about uh, your book. So why don't we start with uh, this concept of stop being right. We all know people that have to be right often, Maybe some of them we know very personally. <laughs> what drove you to write this book?
0: It's, uh, it's fascinating. I, I think this, particularly over, you know, it's, uh, it's similar within North America, but uh, within Australia, last one to two years, we've been going down the lockdown path. And I think my kids of my uh, partner, Maddie, has told me it's not always a to, <laughs> right to be right more times than maybe I have within my CEO gigs. So it's definitely personal um, as well as prevalent within business. I suppose it's, uh, I was the type of leader, Aidan, when I first started, and I think a lot of leaders are like this, I thought the leadership was all about being right. In every debate, discussion, dialogue that I'd have, I'd go into wanting to win and always thought there's going to be a winner and I've always thought there was going to be a loser. And it was intellectual sparring, and it was good fun. And I was actually okay at it. You know, like uh, probably most of your sort of viewers, we're reasonably competitive and results oriented. Um, and I did okay, and success was all right. But then, when you do reflect, you start to realise that it's restrictive of thinking, which we just talked around. Your relationships that you develop when you are right are very short term, the one off. Now, my belief is. The best breakthrough results come when you have stage two and stage three of a relationship. That's when the depth and the trust and the vulnerability is actually being displayed. That's your massive opportunity. But when you're right, your relationships are not enduring. They're not mutual and uh, they're very short term. And probably the, the next one on that is when you're always right, your teams and your direct reports, they don't challenge you. I don't put an input towards you and they don't develop because why would they? Every time they get into a discussion with you, they're always going to lose. And what that leads to is inertia. So they're resigned to thinking, there's no bloody point actually putting this in. So it could be incredibly restrictive. So over time, best leaders I've found, and I've certainly changed my, my sort of stance, you've got to be humble concede, um, show with total vulnerability uh, humility that, hey, I've got this entirely wrong, change where you need to, and importantly, um, start to give a lot more freedom and autonomy to others. Even if they do things that you don't necessarily think is the right way, it doesn't matter. Help and empower them along the way. So it's something I've learned uh, along the way through some some harsh experiences where uh, I thought it was right to be right. Uh, it's not always the case, as your partner will tell you.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes m- makes a lot of sense. It's very interesting how you talk about if you're right all the time, you will develop short term and almost like more um, topic, like basically surface level relationships and like some of the some of the, I guess, like deeper relationships start to be formed when you're vulnerable, when you have these sorts of, you know, I I love the term you use, crucial moments that make your relationships uh, on on a more deeper level. One of the things that comes to mind is we recently had uh, Colin Breyer, who's former Amazon VP, you know, on the show. And one of the Amazon leadership values is leaders are right often or, or something like that. I may be butchering it a little bit, but you're not saying that, like you shouldn't try to be right or that, you know, as a leader, you shouldn't develop great judgment. That That's not what you're saying here.
0: No, 100% not. And there's, um, in any organization, there's decision making hierarchy. So you've got to make a decision at the end of the day. And do you want to make the right decision? 100% you do. You have to be curious enough and people have to appreciate that they have been heard. And then when you actually communicate back your decision making, even if your decision is not the recommendation of somebody else, as long as you clarify and they believe they've been heard and explain your rationale behind your decision, the context, the content, People actually accept that. And I've always thought it's important to actually be 100% authentic within there. And I think, Aidan, we we may or may not talk around this, but there's a methodology that when communicating back tough decisions, it talks around you honour the past. And that's really important. A lot of leaders, when they come in new jobs, they don't honour the past and they piss everyone off something chronic. You respect the present. Because those people who are within operational detail at the moment, it's really difficult for them and you've got to give them respect, but you give them hope for the future as well. And those three elements, if you're making decisions that are even different from others, um, if you follow that path, people actually will respect that decision, may not agree with it, but they'll respect and understand why you made that.
1: Yeah. You know, I I would love to dig into this uh, a bit more, You know, I I think this is applies to anybody who is taking on a new team, because not all of us have the luxury of just, you know, let's hire our own people and we're going to choose like exactly who we want. And sometimes we we adopt a team, we get parachuted into a new organization. Uh, If, you know, you're like me uh, had a company once that was was acquired by by another company and you have new leadership there are many many cases where you run into this so I'd love for you to just give us an example of how to do this well so say that you you know are in this situation you you adopt a new team and you have to run your playbook
0: I'll give give you an example what happens is that Probably the best one is when you come into a new team or you're a new leader or you take something on that's been difficult, if it's in a turnaround situation, the business is in a world of pain and what they've gone through in the past has been bloody hard, it's been difficult, and they haven't been successful. So often a new leader will come in and quite rightly, with conviction, they'll say, this is the direction we're going down. Now, unfortunately, senior managers and senior leaders are often the worst offenders. They'll come in and they will give no respect of what's happened in the past. Now, regardless of the situation, people make the right decisions with the best information that they have. Everyone has got good intentions on that. And as soon as you come in as a new leader and you actually bag and sort of talk around baggage about what you did wrong in the past you're immediately putting off every single person who is associated with that within the past. So honoring the past, talking around appreciative inquiry about the good things that actually did take place, because obviously there were good things, and then equally respecting the present. So again, coming in and talking around a turnaround situation, as soon as you bad mouth off X, Y, and Z, this is what you guys are doing wrong, you need to do X, Y, and Z, it's unacceptable. I get it. It's conviction leadership. But again, people actually walk away disengaged. It's as though they don't understand I'm operationally immersed within that.
1: Just to dig in a little bit more, and and this may be like a very novice question here, but when you're talking about what is the difference like very like tactically uh, between honoring the past and respecting the present? Because presumably, they could be one and the same. So, so how do you distinguish between those two?
0: I think I, when I talk around honoring the past, it's around mainly around strategic decisions and directions that were taken. So let's say you decided to go within a new geographical format. Um, let's say you went within a new category adjacency that you actually took off uh, within this direction or even on a organizational design, you had an outsourcing as opposed to internal uh, approach. So those strategic decisions, that's to me around honoring the past. And even if they turn out to be the incorrect decisions, at the time they were made with the right information, uh, information possible. So you can't dish that. Now, when I talk around respecting the present, there may be some sort of overlaps, But often people don't actually realize when you come into a business, what are those day-to-day operational challenges that happen? My workload, the competitive element that I have, I may have a customer or a client who is not willing to be mutual and partnered in that. So it's very easy to come in and believe that this is how it should be, you should be doing this. And unless you actually respect those operational difficulties and help unblock those for people, um, I think it can be incredibly disengaging.
1: Yeah, let's talk about this last step, which is provide hope for the future. So, what is what are some effective ways to do that?
0: Yeah, I've always thought on this, and I know there's you know a lot of people talk around the why and the overall purpose, but. Um, Purpose-led companies are growing in more importance, not only in regard to employee value propositions, people wanting to join a business, but equally now, um, consumers' clients are wanting ethically sustainable purpose-led companies. So the importance of providing hope for the future and ambition, it's really important to, to everyone in the business. Unfortunately, what I see happen too often is constant change, and that's okay, but a change in strategic direction, hopping from one area to another. And equally, a lot of time, there's organizational design revamps. So structural changes, departments, redundancies, etc. And when you go through that turmoil of change, it's reality, but you need to provide hope that there is a good future, It's vision-related, it's purpose-related, it meets your values, et cetera, and people believe that there's confidence going forward that we're heading within the right direction. And even if that direction will pivot and change over time, that's okay, but unless you provide hope for the future, there's no way people can go through a change agenda um, feeling as though it's uh, heading within the right direction. And just a very small thing, I think one of the things that I get frustrated around with leaders they jump into trying and, and doing continuous organizational design changes. So a revamp and structure. And there's nothing worse than consistent changes within uh, OD. If you're going to do an organizational design change, do it once, do it big, and do it at, uh, at collectively at the same time as opposed to continuous one because uncertainty for anyone self-included. It's never a nice feeling uh, within that. So uh, it's it's a mistake I think a lot of people jump into thinking, oh, just to change and pivot here. um, It can be very dangerous an OD change.
1: Hey there, just a quick note before we move on to the next part. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already doing one-on-one meetings. But here's the thing. We all know that one-on-one meetings are the most powerful, but at the same time, the most misunderstood concept and practice and management. That's why we've spent over a year compiling the best information, the best expert advice, into this beautifully designed 90 plus page ebook. Now don't worry, it's not single-spaced font, you know, lots of text, there's a lot of pictures, it's nice, easily consumable information. We spent so much time building it, and the great news is that it's completely free. So head on over to fellow.app slash blog to download the definitive guide on one-on-ones. It's there for you, we hope you enjoy it, and let us know what you think. And with that said, let's go back to the interview. One thing that I also wanted to talk about, you know, as as we talk more about you know people on the team, is you have this uh, this this way of almost classifying types of behaviors uh, to drain, you know, people who are drains and and those that are radiators. I'd love for you to elaborate on that. I don't know if you would agree but I, but I think like are, are there a lot of people that would classify themselves as being drains <laughs> and uh and, and, and so if nobody classifies themselves as being drains, like how is it that we w- will be able to classify others uh, in that way?
0: Yeah, I, I love this. Uh, I, I love the terminology. I started out life in uh, London advertising. I was a copywriter. I was a terrible copywriter. So they quickly moved me on. But this drains and radiators concept is uh, from one of the major sort of advertising agencies and the whole element behind it is a drain, it's exactly what a drain actually sounds like. They're negative, they're pessimistic, they have limiting views, um, they never see opportunity, and their negativity radiates, well, negativity infects right across the business. Now, we do all have drain moments. There's no doubt around this. Personal life as well. Um, However, I used to say there's nothing worse as a leader than having a drain around you there is, it's having a drain around your team. And it is something over time. I have made mistakes because I haven't moved drains on within the organization because they've been technically brilliant. But if they're drains, I needed to move them out. There's probably three occasions where I was just too slow to act in regard to moving a drain out of the the business, probably three to four occasions. Um, Whereas a radiator on the other hand, They see opportunity. They have a can-do attitude. They're incredibly infectious. Their energy levels are high. It's a possibility mindset. Now, the one important thing to note, a radiator is not a Pollyanna. And a Pollyanna will see the best in everything. A radiator can still be a challenger, a provocateur, um, have crucial conversations. But every time they put that challenge across, they get into solution mode. And they are results-driven, they're action-oriented on that. So I think it's it's important on it. And it depends on what type of culture you want to set as a leader. Um, Some people are actually okay on that degree of negativity. For the teams and organizations that I've led and I want to lead, uh, life's too short to have too many sort of drain moments around. Um, So it's a personal view, but I put that philosophy way ahead of engagement, way ahead of satisfaction. um, And it's probably my number one focus within a business, but equally, agency partners as well. You want positivity.
1: Hmm. That's, uh, That's super interesting. And I like that you also talk about making sure that the other sort of organizations that you have relationships with, that this is something that you look for as well. Is there a way to figure this out during an interview process?
0: Um, I think it will. It probably comes back to that, you know, C plus W, uh, curiosity and willingness. You can uh, you can definitely link that uh, link that out. I think there are also opportunities. You ask around, what is their belief in regard to where the organisation will be or where the industry will be in x uh, x years time. So you'll get that perspective element to come out. You can also actually uh, role-play in regard to crucial conversations and put challenges there. And if somebody within a challenge on a business turnaround or a realignment situation, if they are very short-term, very negative in regard to that approach, and also very silo-oriented, not looking to connect within a group, there's probably sort of alarm bells that actually jump out. So I think there are ways to actually look. I once... uh, it's so the head of a uh, telecom unit, you know, the CEO I know within the UK, and he said his overall objective, every leadership team meeting that they had, their objective as a CEO but also as leadership team, everyone who walked into that meeting had to walk out more energised and inspired before they walked in, and. I just love that concept. The amount of times I think over my career, and I've been at some great organisations, but when you walk out of some meetings, you feel incredibly deflated. Um, you feel as though you've sort of just been sort of, you know, cut down. There are limiting beliefs that have been put through there. But that ability to energise and inspire people to possibility. Um, It's incredibly uh, advantageous. James Allen from Bain uh, Consulting always talks around the importance of energy within a CEO, and uh, it just resonates with me greatly.
1: That's uh, you know the the energy concept is uh, is very very important. So you know as a as a senior leader like managing your energy state is uh, is super important. Would you ever, for example, cancel a meeting if you just didn't feel, like if you were just having one of those, you know, being a drain type of days?
0: Yeah, listen, we all have them, don't we? Um, that's a great question, actually. Uh, yeah, I reckon I would. I'm just trying to think if I had, uh, if I have. I definitely haven't gone, um, I've pulled out of a couple of uh, market visits because uh I just was over, not overwhelmed, but I knew that I wasn't going to inspire within those market visits because I had too many other things on the mind. I think probably, this comes back around, I've got a philosophy of, uh, which I term it, life-work balance as opposed to work-life balance. Um, Paul Pullman from uh, Unilever um, termed that phrase and it just resonates with me. I love work, but... I know that I'm only at my very best at work when I'm excellence in life. And that's that whole balance element and you'll know all around that, uh, you know, the Bill George sort of uh, energy where you derive uh, your energy from. But that importance of being at your best, unless you're at your best, how can you actually derive that energy and inspiration into others? And the very best leaders, no matter how challenged they are, no matter how busy they are, and you look at... Uh, their agenda and you almost sort of shudder and think, my God, how do they do that? They're always composed. They don't seem to have those off days um, and they seem very much more balanced in regard to their approach. And I think that's because they have that excellence in life as well as at work and equally the great leaders. And this is one thing I'm very conscious of. I tell my direct reports, you have a responsibility to role model life work balance to others. And when you see a boss who is constantly stressed, constantly out of a family environment, um, constantly in a negative sort of mindset, it doesn't really inspire you to try and actually rise up that corporate ladder. So as a leader, you have a role model to, I think, to showcase life-work balance. And it's okay if you live for work that's all right. If you want to work 24 hours a day, no trouble at all. But you can't show negative behaviors uh, to those within the corporation.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's incredible advice. So talking about you, you mentioned the word agenda, you you have a chapter in the book called who is writing your agenda. I'd love for you to tell us what that's about.
0: Yeah, listen, it's um, there's a as I said I'm from New Zealand originally and there's a our, a great rugby coach that we had Jeff called Sir Steve Hansen and he's got the concept called you don't need to lose to learn but it sure helps and <laughs> it is so true though isn't it every time you sort of lose or something you you go into a lot of review you look for insight context you know content etc but How can you actually stay ahead of that curve? And everything that I try and do is, and I don't always, I'm definitely not always successful on it, but how can I control my agenda, write my agenda, lead versus manage, fix before broken, and get ahead of that curve? And it's a difficult thing to be able to do, but... I think it's incredibly important for a leader to do. And the best practical way, in my advice, is you need to actually plan and think around your forward state. So, what is that end point? What is your vision and mission? What are your strategic priorities, your key enablers, your cultural dimensions? What do you want to achieve in that next three to five years? And then start getting ahead of the agenda. So, those capabilities and competencies that are going to be needed tomorrow. How do you start putting them in place today? And I think it's a McKinsey study, or it may have been BCG. It said 90% of CEOs, global CEOs, believe there'll be a major business disruption that'll happen in the next five years. Yet, they are only investing 10% of resources to currently get ahead of it. Now, something's wrong on that, that approach. So my belief personally in business you should be doing everything you can to get ahead of the curve, setting up new capabilities, over investing within that, taking on new segments or parts of the business, different ways of working, processes, different partnerships to get ahead of that curve. Um, so, I personally, I, I take that pretty seriously.
1: Yeah. And so, when you're operating as a CEO, like how much of your time, you know, if you had to just bucket it, is, say forward looking looking you know past one year versus looking at the uh, the current quarter
0: yeah it's a it's a tough balance uh, Aiden and I, I I don't have a percentage I'll tell you what I'd like it to be I think it should be 70 30 70 percent transformational and 30 percent transactional so be on top of the business as opposed to in the business it does fluctuate you know I've been at times it's been completely reversed. The best way to do it is surround yourself by very gifted people. Um, Let them take those operational elements on. Um, So that's number one that I think if you've got the right people, it allows you to actually step back and actually reflect. The second one is really establishing upfront your strategic plan. Now, a lot of people don't do that strong enough but set their strategic direction where they're going. And I term it a strategy on a page and there's loads of templates for it, but the simplicity and easy to follow strategies are incredibly appealing. Now, once you've got that right, it allows you to actually step back and review and constantly focus on that. There are other elements like um, uh, performance measures versus general measures. So in a leadership team agenda, you want to actually create your agenda around these performance measures. Doesn't mean the general measures are not important, but you only talk around them when maybe three or four periods in a row, if they're red scorecard, you'll look at them then. But otherwise, you just park that to the side and only focus on those real game changes, which forces your leadership agenda to, uh, to actually do. And probably the last one is a leader, which is hard. You've got to accept Um, less perfection, which is really hard if you're uh, quite a sort of diligent person, but it's okay if uh, these things don't go 100% right and you can't jump in and micromanage even if you think there's a better way of doing it. That goes back to uh, not always being right to be right. Um, That's a tough one to accept, but giving that freedom autonomy, spending your time coaching and empowering and developing as opposed to directing and micromanaging um, allows you to actually step back. But the one thing I have learned, not all leaders can do that. And that's okay. It's just a different capability set um, to be had.
1: Yeah, no, th- that that is, uh, that is incredible advice. And I think we have talked about uh, so many different things. We talked about how you don't need to lose to learn, but it does help. We've talked about you know hiring people not like yourself. We've talked about uh, stopping being right. Uh, just so many different things. This is super wide-ranging but, and very insightful discussion. One of the questions that we like to ask all of the uh, guests on the show is, Uh, For all the managers and leaders constantly looking to get better at their craft, do you have any tips, tricks, or final words of wisdom that you'd like to leave them with?
0: I think the the main one is um, I have this concept and uh, belief that it's the 98% rule. And when I talk around this, it means 98% of what you hear, particularly in regard to feedback, let it go uh, over your shoulder Um, And it's only really the 2% that resonate with you. And the reason I say that is when you receive a lot of feedback and uh, so many companies, we get it from all levels, it can be very overwhelming. And the danger of it, people change who they are and their identity. And what you want to do with all feedback, et cetera, and even role modeling and inspiring to be like other leaders you want to refine yourself, but don't change fundamentally your persona and what appeals to you as a leader. And that's to me is around being 100% authentic. So my main encouragement to everyone, and I'll say it consistently, refine who you are, be very curious and open, but don't fundamentally change. Because as soon as you do, and I've got a chapter in the book talks around the man who used to smile, trying to be somebody they were not um it's a really painful experience um but you just need to be your best and oscar wilde's got this uh, great quote Aiden. i think it's like, be yourself everyone else has taken uh, <laughs> I, I just love that
1: yeah no that's amazing uh you know the book is it's not always right to be right we'll link to it in the show notes hamish thanks so much for doing this
0: great to connect aden thank you
1: and that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread
0: the word about the show. See you next time.